0: You are listening to Meet the Thriller Author, the podcast where I interview writers of mysteries, thrillers, and suspense books. I am your host, Alan Peterson, and this is episode number 109. In this episode, I'll be talking with John Gilstrap, who is a New York Times bestselling author of the Jonathan Grave uh, thriller series. He's also written other books like uh, Nathan's Run and Six Minutes to Freedom. He's also written screenplays for Hollywood. He's adapted the works of Nelson DeMille, Norman McLean, and Thomas Harris. And he is a frequent speaker at literary events where he teaches uh, seminars on suspense writing uh, techniques. And so we're going to have had a lot of fun talking with John about his books and about his uh, writing advice. Uh, So stay tuned for uh, my interview with uh, John coming right up. A quick reminder to please go and uh, rate this uh, podcast wherever it is that you're listening to it, Uh, be it the Apple Podcast, uh, Google Podcast, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this, uh, please take a moment to uh, rate and review it. It's the best way to get the uh, word out on the podcast. Uh, So I appreciate that. And do check out my website, thrillerauthors.com where I have over 100 interviews with the uh, best-selling authors of mysteries, thrillers, and suspense books. Okay, here's my interview with John Gilstrap, who is the best-selling author of the Jonathan Grave thriller series and other books like uh, Nathan's Run, which has been translated and published in one form or another in over 20 countries. A uh, former firefighter, EMT, safety explosives, environmental engineer, and now an uh, author. I'm uh, very excited to talk to uh, John. Welcome to the, to the podcast.
1: Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So I hope you're staying safe and healthy out there with the the pandemic and all the craziness in the world. Uh,
1: Doing the best we can, right? It's invisible. So all all you can do is hope.
0: Uh, So can you tell the the listeners about your background, please?
1: I was an overnight success after a 38-year day. So I was was 38 when my first book came out. Prior to that, um, I have a master's degree in safety engineering. Um, My specialty in that is explosives and hazardous materials and hazardous Mm -hmm. waste. Um, I also spent 15 years as a firefighter and, and EMT. So I didn't realize it. At t- I've always wanted to be a writer. It's kind of, you know, that the thing was always in the background of something I thought would be cool to do. I never thought I'd be a success at it. And, and looking back, it's kind of strange. I feel like I spent those years training to be a thriller writer.
0: And were you always, like, writing, like, uh, on the side, like, things that never got published, that never went anywhere? Or
1: Oh, yeah. My I, my first book, Nathan's Run, was officially my first book. It was actually my fourth book. Uh, so I, I wrote three of them for the drawer, but you know, I never tried to do anything with them because I, I always knew uh, in my heart of hearts, I've always been an avid reader. I just, I, I'm an omnivore. And I just knew that those earlier books just weren't ready for prime time. So I never tried to do anything with them. And then when I, when I finished with Nathan's round, I thought, wow, I think, I think this one will work.
0: And, and it worked pretty well, right? right off, Right. Your, your, your first book.
1: <laughs> yeah. My first book worked very well, actually. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, and so, can you tell us about that? Like your your first published experiencing experience, and then that with Nathan's Run coming out and being such a big uh, a bestseller.
1: Well, first of all, it was 1996, so it's been a, it's been a long time. Everything was done by paper, so you know you FedEx whole manuscripts back and forth, and everything's done by email. Uh, but back then, um, I had picked up 27 rejections by from agents who uh, didn't want to represent the book. Actually, I wrote I wrote a fairly crappy. Query letter is what happened, and I finally found an agent who would take me on. She called me on February 23rd. The things you remember, right? Mm -hmm. She called me on February 23rd, 1995, and said that she wanted to uh, represent the book. And then she called me again on March 1st to say that she'd gotten several offers on the book. And then she called me on March 3rd to tell me that we had sold the movie rights and that the publishing rights had already been sold in eight or nine countries, whatever it was. And then it just went, it was this juggernaut of, of contracts and success. And it, it was pretty cool. I mean, you wake up one morning and you're a safety engineer trying to make ends meet. And, and then suddenly, you know, in, in a couple of days, it's like, wow, I've made more money than I've made cumulatively in my whole life up to that point. So it was, it was, it was quite a ride.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic too. Especially you know, sometimes, even when you get published, it still takes you a while to like be able to make a living out of it. So that was yeah, really, was really. Awesome.
1: And you know, it was my first time. I didn't know that's not how it's supposed to work. You know, certainly the dream. <laughs> how did I know?
0: <laughs> you're like, oh, I should have tried this earlier. <laughs> yeah. 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 that's pretty cool. You know, it, it's, I'm always amazed. I always hear all the people that I've interviewed, usually with the rejections, is anywhere from like 20 to 100, but like 20 to 40 seems to be the sweet spot. So FYI to, to listeners out there who are aspiring to get published.
1: <laughs> well, for readers, for people who are out there looking to be published, remember this. A query letter, if your query letters are getting rejected, it's not your story, it's your letter. Right, so these days, a, a good a good query letter should be able to get a request for even a bad manuscript because nobody will know it's a bad manuscript until after they've read it. Right, so oh, yeah. the, the issue now is that you know with email it's so easy to put stuff out now. Um, the, the agents, are, everybody's just inundated with with queries, so it's really hard to float to the top.
0: Yeah, and it is. It is really crazy out there. I follow a few agents on Twitter, and uh, some of the stories they tell about pissed off uh, authors who get they're rejected and they like take it personally and start stalking them. It's just crazy out there.
1: <laughs> there is a special level of cluelessness among artistic people. So, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it, it's just the nature of the beast. I think I'm glad that I got my start when I did. I, I think it's while a lot more stuff gets published these days, I think it's a lot harder to succeed these days than it did back then simply because it was, it was so difficult. Um, when I was going through the query process again in the the mid nineties, Stephen Hunter, who's now, you know, runaway bestselling author, the the Bobby Swagger books. um, He was the film critic for the Baltimore sun. And um, he, we had a mutual friend. So, so I, I called him up and I asked him how many times he had been rejected. And he said, never. And that, well, okay, that's not helpful. And he said, well, no, but remember he, his first manuscripts, he typed them. So, you know, like, Roll the paper through the platen every time and, and start all over again. So each new draft was literally a page one rewrite. And he said, "You really had to want it back then in order, in order to keep going." So I think there's some truth to that. You know, the barriers to entry are feel much less now than than they really are, but back then they were very real.
0: So uh, tell us a little bit about the uh, the Jonathan Grave series. That's uh, I, I believe Hellfire is the latest book. How did uh, the, that series come together for you?
1: Um, back in 2006, I wrote a nonfiction book called uh, Six Minutes to Freedom. And at the time, I was told it was the only uh, book that Delta Force, the first special forces operational detachment, Delta, had ever cooperated in. And it told the story of the rescue of Kurt News, who was a political prisoner in, in Panama uh, in 1989. And he was rescued in the opening moments of Operation Just Cause. I got exposure to what these these elite special forces groups really do. And, it, and it's pretty amazing that there's, there's a difference between how kidnappings are handled domestically and how they're handled internationally. Domestically, if, if somebody is, is kidnapped, and I know some really good friends of mine are with the hostage rescue team, and, and, and they will tell you, a kidnapping is considered a homicide in slow motion. There's really very little anticipation we're getting the good guy back. Not that they don't work hard for it. I'm not suggesting that they write anything off or, or, or anything of the sort. But the real goal of, of a hostage rescue from uh, run by the police department is to make sure that the bad guys don't go free. You know, so you got to collect the evidence, you got to make sure that all the, the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed, the warrants are in good shape, and you know, all that kind of stuff. Overseas, if you're taking prisoner overseas, the American intelligence. Uh, forces start working on your rescue right away. And it happens more than you think. It happens a whole lot, actually. And um, more times than not, the rescue will be pulled off by local assets, whoever the, you know, the Italian police, or whatever the case may be. But there are a lot of places in the world where that doesn't happen. So in that case, the rescue is handled by uh, these special forces groups. These are going to be Delta Force or uh, SEALs. And in that case, the mission is to rescue the hostage everything else is secondary, excuse me, is secondary in rescuing the hostages. So if you can pick up intel, if you can get, if you pick up bad guys or whatever the case may be, that's fine, but that's not the mission. So if you think about it, there's a very subtle, but important difference there. So where Jonathan Grave, the seed, it's a very long answer to a short question, where the, the seed of the character came from was an independent operator. Who's a former Delta operator who takes the international model and applies it Domestically, so that if your loved one is taken, he's going to get them back, and he doesn't really care much about what happens to the bad guys.
0: Yeah, it's always been fascinating with your series too, because I, I, as a child, I grew up in Venezuela in the '70s. My dad worked for a, a American corporate corporation down there, and that was a real, a real fear about getting kidnapped. And I remember there was a guy that got kidnapped and he was, he was, he was gone for like three years. They did recover him actually after years. And then, of course, the whole thing with the Beirut in the 80s. I've always been fascinated with that, with that field and that people actually work in rescuing hostages. It's just pretty, pretty awesome. Um,
1: I actually know a guy whose job, he, he's, not as, he, he's not as flashy as, as Jonathan. In fact, it's, a, um, it's almost an office job. But his job is to negotiate the ransoms for executives who are kidnapped and taken across the southern border. To one place or another, and it happens so often. It's a business model. You pay, if you write the check or if you give the cash, you get your guy back. If you don't, then it gets difficult. But it's it's a real business model now. That's wow. um, as as twisted and sick as mm. as it is. It you know kind of almost makes sense. Uh,
0: so tell us about uh, Hellfire.
1: Hellfire opens with Jonathan is among other things. He he's very wealthy. He's the son of a career criminal, and his dad is is in prison. And left him a lot of money that Jonathan's kind of ashamed of, actually. And one of the things that Jonathan did trying to right wrongs is he established a place called Resurrection House, which is a residential school for the children of incarcerated parents, which I actually think is kind of a cool idea. So in the opening moments of, of Hellfire, uh, two brothers, Jeff and Ryder Kendall, are being transported from a foster home to Resurrection House when the vehicle they're in is stopped and, and attacked and their, their um, chaperones are killed and Jeff and Ryder are taken prisoner. So Jonathan of course is very close to this cause they're coming to the the place where, where uh, that he sponsors. And what the story is really about is in addition to the hostage rescue, the reason behind their kidnapping is, is kind of terrifying. You know, it's, it's, uh, by getting the kids back and, and getting ahead of the reason they were kidnapped will save thousands of lives. So that's, that's kind of a, the, the backbone of Hellfire.
0: What's your process in, when you sit down to, to write these, these books? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you do a lot of research up front. What's, uh, what's the process from, from getting the idea to, and sitting down to, to write these, uh, these novels?
1: You know, I, honestly, obviously that question comes up a lot. And my, <laughs> my truthful answer is I don't know. And I try not to think about it too much because I'm under contract and I got I to gotta produce a book. So what's the what's the premise? Well, in this case, I thought taking care, kidnapping somebody on their way to a resurrection house, which we've established is very, very close to Jonathan's heart. Okay, that's really putting a stick in the hornet's nest. Thought, okay, that will let off a good story. And then comes the endless whys. Well, why do they do that? Well, why would they do that? Okay, they've done this, but How does that pay off? So for me, I don't, I'm not a big outliner. Mm -hmm. I kind of find my way through and, and see what happens.
0: Hmm. And what do you use? You use like a, we we know you don't use a typewriter. You use like word or
1: just word, (laughs) just Microsoft word. And um, as I get ideas, as I, as I type along, in fact, I was doing it. I stopped about 20 minutes ago. (laughs) Um, As I'm going along in a story, if I get an idea like, Oh wow, this will be a cool scene or whatever the case may be, I drop to the bottom of the manuscript and I just write myself a reminder. And then in the spot where it's going to go, I put three asterisks. So as I get to the end of a story, I do a lot of asterisk searching and, and a lot of note erasing. At the, I mean, there'll be 30, 40, 50 pages of these notes at the end of a manuscript.
0: Once you finish writing, uh, how long does it take you to polish it up before you send it off to your editors and everybody?
1: I start every writing session by rewriting what I wrote the previous session. <laughs> right. So it's as I, as I go through, forward through a book, at any given point in time, it's fairly polished, because I've already rewritten it at least once, and sometimes two or three times. And then if I realize, oops, that scene, you know, back in chapter three is not going to work, or I need to add a second floor to the building, or you know, whatever the case may be, I go back and fix that real time. So really, by the time I get to the end of a book, my, my uh, manuscript that I'm working on now is due on September 15th, you know, I'll probably be done with the first go-through around September 8th or 9th and then do another quick read-through and send it off. It's, it's, it's pretty clean at that point.
0: Hmm. Is, is, the, is your work in progress now? Is it another Jonathan Grave uh, novel?
1: It is. Oh, yeah, awesome. I've started another series called Crimson Phoenix, and I submitted that back in, I think it was April 1st, April 15th, um, and now I'm working on the new Grave books. I'm actually doing two series a year now. Oh, okay. Because I'm I'm freaking crazy, but <laughs> hey, COVID. I got nothing else to do.
0: So. Yeah, there you go. It's perfect for writing. Perfect yeah. social distancing, right? <laughs> Too serious. Exactly.
1: Exactly. <laughs> I get very close to my imaginary friends. I think
0: they're okay. Yeah. What's your other series? Have has that has the, has those books been published as well? I'm, I'm familiar with Jonathan Grave, but not the uh, the what do you say it was the Phoenix? Sorry, um,
1: Crimson Phoenix. Crimson Phoenix. In, in this, it's an enti- it is an entirely different. It, it could not be more different than, than, the grave books. They're still thrillers, but in this, it, the Crimson Phoenix theory, uh, series imagines world war three that lasts about eight hours. And the um, everything is, everything is destroyed. All the infrastructure is gone and um, weak people become feral pretty quickly in, in that circumstance. And it actually comes down to a single mom in West Virginia who, Turns out to be her name is Victoria Emerson. She turns out to be the leader that that she doesn't want to be, but everybody turns to. And you know, it's it's kind of I can't call it post-apocalyptic. That's my first thought because nowadays that means zombies and <laughs> supernatural stuff and all. It, it, it's none of that. It's really about people learning to do without stuff and rebuilding. There's been a lot of stuff over the years about you know, prepping, preparing for the mm. disasters and all this, but really what preppers, now there's a special line of research. If you want to go down a rabbit hole, we can get kind <laughs> of scary pretty quickly. Start looking into the preppers. But for the most part, preppers are all about preserving what's mine. You know, it's, it's, you protect your family, you protect yourself. There's very little about rebuilding society after the fact. So mm. I think this is, you know, I'm a child of the 70s, so I've, in 60s, I, I, I was influenced by Last Babylon, and On the Beach, and you know, all those, those 60s and 70s era after the war books. And uh, this is just kind of one of those things that it hit me all of a sudden, and, and I, I love it. I, I'm really happy with the way the first one turned out. It'll be out in March.
0: That sounds fun yeah that's that's really true because you always hear the especially back in the 50s and 60s during the cold war was you know you go down to the to your bunker your basement or whatever but there yeah, what what would happen afterwards when everyone starts re-emerging from those things
1: yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. well twilight zone back in yeah. the day did several really good episodes on that
0: yeah oh yeah what's the one with, one with bridges meredith where he finally has time we to had a read library?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah
0: I mean. oh, that was cruel <laughs> Well, we'll not spoil it in case people haven't seen it, but that's a good. That's one of my favorite pilot Zones. <laughs> um, I noticed when I was uh, on your website that the, the, you, uh, you you do a lot of speaking at literary events. Well, when we were able to travel, <laughs> maybe right. next year, right? So that's uh, fascinating. So you actually help a lot in the new writers in the writing community. How did you start getting into that? Do you enjoy doing that?
1: I oh, I love doing it. Um, I, I don't I actually. I don't know how it started. I think it started by saying yes when you get invited to speak to to a a writer's conference Mm. and the conferences that I do, it's anywhere from, I, I can do it in six hours. I can do it in two hours, right? It's obviously the six hours has, has a lot more writing exercises and all this. I, I teach the class that I wish someone had taught to me while I had to learn all this stuff on my own. The, 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 the do's and don'ts, there are no rules to writing. Absolutely, the only rule is that there are no rules. But there are some really good suggestions, and there are ways to keep a a, a story going forward. and And I enjoy teaching that. In, in fact, if you don't, I, I can hype my YouTube channel.
0: Yeah, I was going to mention that one because I was checking some of your videos out.
1: It's, uh, it's called A Writer's View of Writing and Publishing, or, or um, author John Gilstrap will, will get you there on YouTube. I've got, I don't know, 25, 30 videos out mm-hmm. now. And in those, it's kind of, a it, again, it's an insider's view. It takes a, a, a small slice of, of this industry and talks about, like, how do writers get paid? Um, how, do you, how do movie deals happen? What happens when there's a movie deal? Do you really need an agent? Th- those kinds of things. They run anywhere from five to eight minutes, I guess.
0: Yeah, that's what I like of them too. They they uh, they you cover a lot of information, but uh, they're it's, they're concise because there's some you know some videos out there that are like two hours long. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I like yours. Uh, you, have, you you pack a lot of information on them. Uh, so yeah, so highly recommend. And, and you focus on suspense writing. So I said some of the videos are on that. And you know, so for listeners of this podcast, I know we have some aspiring writers. It's uh, highly recommend them. To check that out um, so uh, so I'm I kind of curious so once you're in the writing what do you do you write every day or do you take a break between projects or
1: well I'm a September 15th deadline so I write every day now <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I wish I had written every day two months ago um,
0: <laughs> you're paying for that now
1: right <laughs> exactly exactly you know it's I'm a professional at what I do right and professional means not that you get not just that you get paid but it also means that you have a professional attitude so I go to work every day And some days are more productive in terms of creating story than others. Some days are the YouTube channel. Some days are doing interviews. Some days are, you know, it's, it's, it being an author is, is being a businessman. So you've got the business side of things and the creative side. So, but basically, you know, I try now, I'm kind of caught in a crack. So I got to do a couple thousand words a day to, to really make my deadlines. Um, But generally you know, it's there. There are physical limits to this. You, know, you sit in a chair. For, for me, I'm kind of an ADD kind of guy. Anyway, it, for for me to sit in a chair for more than two or three hours at a at a pop is difficult.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, like one of those big those, on those big writing days, uh, it's hard to explain. But you really you like kind of feel like drained. Like you're like dizzy. If you know, if you're like one of those crazy days when you're writing hours and hours, it's just like you really is, your neck just hurts. It's just kind of crazy.
1: And your focal length is yeah. stuck at like two feet. You you can't (laughs) see anything beyond. You can't see anything closer.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So have you found that has the pandemic changed anything in your writing process or the way things get done? I mean, I guess now where everything's done video and and for everybody. So it's uh, kind of curious on uh, for you as a writing as a writer.
1: It was bizarre to be writing a post-apocalyptic story (laughs) during the apocalypse. You know, things were cutting a little close to home, but now, you know, I live in Virginia and things have, you know, pretty much, opened up you got the whole the, the mask thing and, and what have mm. you but restaurants are opened up again you can eat inside again and you don't have to wear a mask while you're sitting at the table yeah. Yeah. so um it, things are kind of coming back to normal but it it felt very um you know for a few weeks there at the beginning it felt a little emotionally it felt kind of the same place as right after 9-11 it's like mm. everything has changed so much so quickly adapting to it was was a little bit scary but we had plenty of toilet paper to start with so you know we we at least didn't have to suffer that
0: yeah i had happened to had stocked up just before normally i mean not, i didn't go, mm-hmm. and, and, and yes, go no elbow people i had no idea I, I i didn't realize i was going to become such a thing i'm like oh my god i bought some because <laughs> all of a sudden it was like people were well, like well we buy those crazy. products
1: at costco <laughs> so you can't buy a roll you know (laughs) right there you're gonna you you got a month's supply at least
0: yeah 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 that's why i bought i had a target i bought the big thing which is what i always buy but it was like right a week before everything happened i was where i was watching this on tv and my wife like wow Well, i'm glad i bought that uh, last week because for a while there it was looking kind of kind of crazy there but yeah it was interesting interesting times, that's for sure I'm kind of curious though. Were you a fan of thrillers and and, and suspense books uh, before you started to write them as a reader? It's.
1: it's I think that's all I've ever read, except I, what I was forced to read in English class. You know, I was. Uh, you know, I did my stint with the Hardy Boys and Alfred Hitchcock and the Three Investigators and, and those kind of mystery things for boys. But then Alastair MacLean and uh, Frederick Forsyth and you know, it's just all of those those. Trevanian, I think, was a writer back in in the '60s or '70s. Back then, I would I would read the books that my parents put on the shelves. I couldn't afford to buy books, so yeah, it, I've always been, I've always been a sucker for meaningful action. And what I mean is, I, I, I want to care about the characters. I don't want just, you know, action scene, action scene, action scene. That's I, I've, I've, I, swear to you, I have never un- until Daniel Craig took over as James Bond in the films. I don't think I ever stayed awake through a James Bond movie. You know, it just, you know, it it, it pushes credibility to the limit, and it's just one thing after another, and you know how it's going to end, right? I, I want to have character development and, and and something meaningful in the stories. The first, I tell you what, the first book that taught me how to write a thriller. It's I wasn't really looking for it, but it just sort of the first time I saw the skeleton. Of, of The structure was uh, Frederick Forsyth's Day of the Jackal. I
0: oh, love that book. Yeah,
1: I love that book I've, I don't know how many times I've read. it. I first read it as we were a very literary family. So we had readers digest condensed books and, book. and um, yeah. I, I read it first there and then I went out and, and got the book in the library and, and read the real version of it and <clears throat> That's where I saw how Frederick Forsyth took Interesting characters. Obviously the premise is very interesting, too but how he would use changing scenes and space breaks and how chapters would end in the way that you could not, not go on. And so I, I saw that there's a certain amount of manipulation. I, there's no criticism in that at all. Cause I do it too. There's a certain amount of manipulation in creating thrillers. And, and I, that's where I saw it. And I thought at the time, early high school, I thought I can do this. You know, <laughs> 20 years later. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I remember thinking that too when I read those, those, those classic books. I'm like, oh, wow. And then you get all excited and you start. And then, like, you know, a, a, a week later, you're like, oh, man, I don't know. <laughs> you <just> walk away <laughs> mumbling. This is hard. <laughs> yeah. 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 Those, those are great books in the 70s, too. Um, Marathon Man. I can't remember the Goldman. Was it Marathon Yeah. Man? Yep. Yeah, and and I remember I watched those movies uh, growing up as a kid, and then when I really got into reading, I went back and read the books, and they're like, oh, the books are even better, some of them. Mm -hmm. That's pretty awesome. Uh, So you said that even like uh, you've you've dipped your toes in the whole Hollywood world, some of your books have been optioned. How's that whole process? It must be kind of crazy.
1: It is crazy. Um, You know, I don't don't want to disparage anybody because (laughs) I'd love to do it again. Um, I, four, of, four of my books have been either sold or optioned to various studios and I have worked on four, I've written four screenplays, uh, for Hollywood and it's, it, the writing process is the writing process. It, it's, I don't find it to be that much different, quite honestly, but the business side of, of Hollywood is just bizarre. <laughs> um, Handshakes don't mean as much in, in Hollywood as they, as they do in New York. Um, it's, I, I, I think the biggest shift with, with dealing with Hollywood is there's no individual who makes a decision. Everything is done by, the com- by committee. So when I create a book, it's me, and my editor obviously has a vote, a big one, um, but she can't change anything. You know that she needs my permission. The book belongs to me. In Hollywood, everything's work for hire. So you go through all this effort and you produce something and you hand it over, and and, it, and people can change it however they want. You know the money's good, the money is fast, um, but it's it's just it's entirely different. I think that the culture shock for um, somebody like me, who primarily makes makes a living in in uh, New York publishing. The culture shock going to LA is is really hard, and there's a capriciousness to Hollywood. Whether it's, you know, I was part of the Writers Guild and all that, and 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 the Guild goes on strike, mm-hmm. and suddenly, you know, you're you're out of work, and in the studios, as they they got to make money, so I say the studios, but that means production companies, you know, the, mm-hmm. in the studios in a larger sense, they move on to other things. That's where reality television came from. Was from the first big writers' strike. Hey we don't need to pay screenwriters for episodic television. We can take cameras out into real life and just shoot that and pretend it's real. So, you know, that whole, I don't work and play well with others. I guess that's where we're coming from.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Social distancing again. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And do you still find time to read uh, for pleasure?
1: I do, but most of my reading now is actually um, unpublished works that come to me from agents or editors who are looking for blurbs on the covers and I I find a lot of pleasure in that most of it is actually pretty good stuff but in terms of finding the night the whatever is on the bestseller list and and the new best thing no I I typically don't have have time for that and part of it is because I spent all day reading and you know reading what I've written reading other stuff and all of that and and the stuff on netflix and amazon prime yeah. some of that long form television stuff is terrific mm-hmm.
0: yeah yeah i love those. i love those shows uh, ozark and they've got a lot of great shows out there now on those uh on netflix and amazon prime It's just incredible <laughs> uh yeah i always wonder about the, the the blurbing stuff so the, so that's how that works the actual uh, uh publishers send them the books to you and say hey Take a look, if you don't mind, and how, how that all works.
1: Yeah, in essence, either it comes blind, which doesn't happen quite as often as you get mail at the time, that mm-hmm. you know, this is a new author. We love what he's doing and really could use a leg up. And sort of they, – they, the letters are written in such a way it's very difficult to say no to them. And, <laughs> uh, and, and people are receiving those letters. Crimson Phoenix is coming out, so my editor sent out a bunch of blurb requests on that to, to various authors just last week. So it's, it's kind of the way the industry, industry works. But I will tell you this. I mean, just we, we do one must-have principles. Um, I will never blurb anything I don't like. Mm-hmm. So um, I won't be pressured into that. And there are some, I won't go into the details, but there was, there was one that was just such a politically hot topic that I just said no. And you know, I just, no, I don't, no, I don't need that in my life. I don't need my name on that thing. So no.
0: Yeah. I don't blame you. I want, want to, want to, go into that area of uh, nowadays. <laughs> yeah. Be in the, in, the, in the crosshairs right now. <laughs> yeah. So what's next for you and, uh, and for uh, uh, Jonathan Grave?
1: Well, right now I'm in the middle of a book called Stealth Attack, which will come out next July, due in September. And I'm still feeling my way through it, quite honestly. The um, one of Jonathan's uh, technical genius is a, a young lady named Venice Alexander, and it's her son is on a uh, field trip down in Texas, along with his <laughs> his girlfriend that mom didn't know about, and um, and they are both taken, and they're taken across the border, and now it falls to Jonathan to. To get them back but again as always the case with with the books it's the rationale behind the kidnapping is where the where the the, the real drama is in addition to it's fairly dramatic to be held hostage
0: hmm. and so the best place for uh, listeners to find you is at your website john uh, john
1: that's the best place to start everything else follows from there
0: yeah and i really love the way your website is laid out too so i highly recommend readers and in- and check out your, your YouTube channel and all that stuff.
1: Um, and in fact, there's, a, there's an essays section there that, um, again, for aspiring writers who are out there, um, it's got the query letter that sold my first book, again, 25 years ago. Oh. Um, and it also has the full synopsis for Nathan's run. Synopses, I think, are, are true mysteries to people. It's so hard. It takes you 100,000 words to write the book, and then you've got 1,000 words just to make it dramatic and tell people what it's about. So, you know, that kind of stuff is on there, too.
0: Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, I have to go, I'll have to check that out myself. Because yeah, that's the whole thing. Even though a lot of things change in publishing, like that part is still the same as it's always been. You have to try to get an agent and then have them to go sell it, sell the manuscript for you, and I'll touch with the query letter.
1: And it's still a relationship business. It's about it's about being good at what you do, but it's also about being friendly and 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 have a work ethic and be true to your word and all that all that stuff that you learn in other business that, that you've had. Um, but it really is. It's interpersonal. not I, I know people who've never met their a, a, uh, agents or editors, yet you're still in close contact. And, and that personal dynamic makes a big difference. All
0: right. Well, Hellfire uh, was published June 30th. So uh, listeners, go check it out. Thank you for being on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. Anytime.
0: Thanks for listening to the Meet the Thriller Author podcast. Be sure to visit thrillerauthors.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover great thrilling reads. If you enjoy the podcast, I'd love for you to subscribe, uh, rate, and give a review uh, to it, wherever it is that you're listening to this uh, podcast, be it uh, iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, uh, wherever it is that you're uh, listening to this right now, I would appreciate it. And uh, please do check out my own thriller novels over at my website at alanpeterson.com. Until next time.